Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties from around the globe to develop community organising strategies and train their leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to organise, inspire others, take action and create change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn. Morris Blackburn's dust diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation result, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. And Morris Blackburn are currently looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their dust diseases team in their Brisbane office to, pl- to apply Simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. I've been reading that ad out for a while. Surely the employee, <laughs> you must have employed someone by now. I know that I've been reading it out for a while because I've actually got good at reading it out. Normally, I am um, making an absolute hash of it. Anyway, Morris Blackburn, go work there. Fantastic uh, law firm. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out each Friday that dives into the progressive issues and the campaigns and the people leading them from home and abroad. Uh, on this week, we are joined by a good friend of ours, uh, the former uh, communications director to both the Tony Blair Labor government and the Julia Gillard Labor government, Michael, uh, John McTiernan uh, will join us. Michael, where'd that come from? John McTiernan will join us uh, for today's episode in which we're just going to do a bit of an update on how things are going in the UK for the Labor Party. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff happening um, with uh, Boris Johnson and his governments moving from one crisis to another. Obviously, we now have a, a, a war in, in the Ukraine. That wasn't on anyone's bingo card for 2022, I can assume. Uh, so there's so much to talk about. I just wanted to get John on the, on the show, just have a quick de- debrief with him about how things are tracking for Labor. Um, even, we're sort of at the halfway mark of this current election cycle in the UK for five-year terms, so long. Uh, so look forward to um, having a chat to John uh, today about that. For uh, If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode or leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Tuesday evening on Wurundjeri land in the uh, the heart of Melbourne. And the reason why we're probably taping this one a little bit later in the evening as opposed to normal is because uh, we need to accommodate our guests' time zone. A good friend of the show, a former uh, communications advisor to uh, Labor governments in both the UK and Australia to both Tony Blair and Julia Gillard, and uh, third or fourth time on the show, John McTiernan, welcome back to Socially Democratic. It's great to be back. Thanks. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, and I really wanted to get you on the show really to sort of just give us an update on how things are going in the UK for Labor, and um, and obviously there's been a lot going on in Europe over the last couple of weeks as well to get your take on that. Uh, Before we jump into it, um, I've just come back from Adelaide, uh, a fantastic result for the Labor Party in South Australia with the election of Peter Malinowskis and the Labor team. I don't know if you get, I know obviously, you, you know, you lived out here for a number of years 
you, the Labor Party in Australia is very close to your heart. Were you managing to try and catch any of the media clippings or get a sense of the election? Yeah, look, as, as soon as the, the, the polls closed, I got onto um, the ABC uh, and was following um, Anthony Green and um, his predictions. And I was uh, overjoyed when I saw how big the swing was. Um, and I think it goes to, for me, it goes to a crisis in conservatism in Australian politics, which is um, the Liberals in Adelaide have never worked out why Labour won. Uh, so, you know, Labour can't win forever. The, the Liberals got in, but they, ha- they didn't have a project. They weren't governing. They didn't know what, what question facing the future of South Australia they were the answer to, and they've been swept aside. And I think like, my advice to uh, my friends and, and colleagues in the South Australian Labour Party is, Yes, start governing. Yes, start uh, sorting things out. But don't neglect to tell the public repeatedly how bad the situation is, how badly the Liberals have run down uh, the government. That is much, I mean, it's always great to stop and say it's much worse than we thought. Uh, and actually have inquiries into what those guys did and really stick not just the defeat on them, but stick the whole of the record, all the failures of the government. Uh, because it's a very short, you know, it's, all parliamentary terms are short and it's hard to turn around re- really difficult things quickly. So I'd say it's a great victory. Uh, it should be, it should mean two terms because it's such a big swing. So plan for eight years, but in the first couple, really muddy up the opposition, really, really set out the definition of the problems you're going to solve and then then govern for that eight-year cycle. And if you do, if you if you think about a two-term cycle for governing in, you can probably get yourself a third term. And with that kind of thing, you can actually fundamentally change the nature uh, of it. But I think there's a crisis uh, in in the Liberal Party in Australia, which they don't understand why they're losing urban centres. I see their frustration with, uh, with Victoria. They hate the fact that Melbourne's not a Tory city. Mm. They hate the fact that Adelaide's not reliably Tory. They hate the fact that urban centres are not... Mm. Rel- they just can't adapt to the modern world. We're going to stick that on them now in South Australia, but uh, in forthcoming state elections, but also in the in the federal election. It's amazing if you look at both Victoria and South Australia, uh, the election uh, uh, history since the 1960s, up, up, up until the 1960s, both in Victoria and in South Australia, it was you know dominated by the Liberal Party. And since I read this during the week, since the they restructured the, the the electorates to basically remove gerrymandering uh in south australia in, in the late 1960s which then yeah. had led to the election of don dunstan that's uh, right the liberal party have um wedged themselves into in between the government's successive terms of the dunstan government uh the bannon government the Rand government and, yeah. and now and now yeah. hopefully the uh, long serving um, the Malinaskis government, yeah. yeah. Only one term. They've only been oh, yeah. out, they've won out of government, but they couldn't hold. And yeah. similar in Victoria as well. If you look back from the Kane era all the way through today, yeah. I think they've won three in Victoria. They've won three elections. Yeah. Period. Yeah. No, no. It's really it's it it it, it it's about accommodating to what the modern world is: urbanisation, densification, uh, public transport need for some form of social housing. All kinds of things which the UK Conservatives have managed to adjust to that actually they can they can they can make themselves adapt to what the public want. It seems that the Liberals keep wanting to fight in a previous decade, um, and you know the, the voters give them a chance. They go, oh, yeah, okay, you're not changed. You got, I mean, you got to go and 
take some more time out. And um, it, it really does feel to be... It, look, it's, I think there's a tension in, in modern conservatism across the world, which is that they they tend to win with individuals. Look in New Zealand with John Key and how well they won with John Key, but then they've got no clue how to win without John Key. Um, they tend to win with leaders who basically adopt center-right versus social democratic policies, progressive policies, but the parties are more and more feral about having right-wing solutions. Um, and that means they drift further and further away from a connection with reality, which they used to be grounded with when they had more MPs, when they had more urban uh, MPs. And the thing is, you have to rethink yourself completely if you're going to, if you've been, if you're going to be on such a long losing streak, you need to rethink the fundamentals. Uh, but it's not clear who's going to do that. Well, it was a great result of the weekend, and congratulations to Melanaskis and uh, and to his team, and to Reggie and everyone at head office. Fantastic achievement, um, and um, totally. yeah, really um, hope to uh, see the government do some great things in the next uh, four years. But let's turn to uh, the UK, um, and I want to I want to start off by talking about the the Labor Party. I think the last time we had you on the show was after the Scottish elections and the local council elections that happened up and down the country and elections in Wales as well. Um, but I just wanted to sort of first of all get a sense of how how you think Labor is now faring under the the leadership of, of Keir Starmer. He's been in there since, uh, you know, April 2020. I noticed that Labor has now led in successive national polls and at no stage did Corbyn ever lead when Boris Johnson was PM. Uh, what is the general consensus uh, around how Labor is is tracking at this present time? The the cliche is always uh, that governments lose elections, um, oppositions don't win them, and so there's there's no doubt that the Tories and we should come back to this a bit later. The Tories have managed to throw away a landslide uh, victory. They won by eight, an eighty seat majority in the UK. They don't govern. As though they've got 80 seats, they govern as though they're a minority government at times. Um, but that 80, that, that, that 80 seat majority, an electoral mountain to climb, uh, we've got all the details of it, but it's just, it, it's virtually never been done in the UK to turn that kind of, a, that, that, that kind of defeat around within, uh, within one electoral cycle. I think most people in Keir got elected thought that he was going to be the leader to reconstruct the party in the way that Neil Kinnock did uh, in, the, in, in the 1980s. And that possibly he could, after two cycles, be a challenger for the, the next election. I would say uh, Labour are now uh, in with a really good shot of forming a government for the next election. So the Tories, the Tories have lost the next election, in my view. Labour have yet to, to win the election by sealing the deal with the electorate. But in effect, what you've seen is a couple of cycles, you know, what, what um, uh, took Two elections for Neil Kinnock's doing in 87 and 92 has been done in two years uh, by um, uh, by Keir. And look, partly that is the nature of modern politics. Things are moving much faster than we than uh, than they have, and British politics are fundamentally unstable, as shown by the Brexit referendum, the Scottish referendum, the Scottish parliamentary elections. There's there's a kind of uh, every election kind of confounds your uh, confounds your expectations. The Tories get a minority. In, 20, 2010, they get a slim majority in 2015, they lose majority in 2017, they get a landslide in 2019. So everybody kind of, you know, Johnson wants to think he made a new settlement with voters, but basically that's been chipped away by Labour. And I think that's been, it's been done by, by a couple of things. Obviously, there's the thing you have to do, which is when you have your worst election defeat since the 1930s, you have to define yourself as not being 
uh, a part of that defeat and define yourself against that defeat. So, so Kier's done that quite quite doggedly and solidly. Like I'm not Corbyn. I've got a different front bench. He's taken a while because uh, of factional pressures inside the parliamentary caucus to give himself the front bench team he wants. But he's got that team. It's a confident team. Uh, person for person, it's more than a match for the uh, uh, for the for the Tories. More importantly, there are people in this front bench team who've got ministerial experience, cabinet experience. You've got some, you've got some kind of weight to 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 what they say. But really, the 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 big thing is he's established Labour as the safe option, and in one sense, that was always going to be the strategic the strategic challenge for Labour was you can't be funnier, you can't be more popular, you can't be more populist than Boris Johnson, you can't be more the guy down the pub you'd like to have a drink with than Boris Johnson. Um, a party animal, again, we'll come back to that. Um, but you can be more serious. Uh, and I've always thought, uh, and I've probably said it to you, I've always thought that the opportunity for Labour was if that guy thinks, if Boris Johnson thinks he's Churchill, remember what happened to Churchill he won the Second World War. He defeated Mr. Hitler, and he asked to be elected uh, for that reason. And the voters went, no, we'll have a Labour government. And Clement Attlee was probably one of the least charismatic leaders the Labour Party's ever had. Stolid, man with a plan. And I always thought that kind of Churchill, Attlee, Johnson, Starmer was a potential way of thinking about this. And very carefully, very cautiously, Starmer's presented himself as a man with a plan. Uh, and like and showing up the weaknesses uh, in a guy who is the class joker, you know, the guy who wants to be seen as the funniest man in the room in every meeting. I've been told by senior civil servants that uh, if there's any more than three people in a meeting, Boris Johnson won't make a decision or make a joke. Um, so that kind of uh, that has really worked well for Keir. So with a very he's played a very weak hand, very very well, and he's done that in a context where. Oppositions have found it very hard to get any uh, publicity, any oxygen, because the pandemic became the only issue. And then, you know, we've had this short break, and then we're now in now in a war, a, a major global conflict uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which again we can come back to. So I think it's been, uh, Starmer's done in two years what it took uh, Kinnock two electrocycles to do, the question is, can he in the next two years do what Blair did in one electrocyte in, in, in one short term in opposition? So I think that's the he's, climbed, he's half climbed the mountain uh, and could be can be really proud of what he's done. Uh, the next bit is going to be at least as hard. What state is the the, the party in? You, you mentioned there that he's now got a good team that he that, that uh, around him in 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 Westminster, uh, but the, the membership. It was such a terrible story, such a, a, a you know, a, a, you and I have talked about it on countless other podcasts, but watching the, the membership uh, be flooded in with these people that I don't think generally actually had Labor values, but swelled the ranks and then created this division within the membership um, and saw some really, really ugly stuff. Um, and then which had similar, I, I, you know more, you're a much stronger history, student of the Labour Party history in the UK, but it had that sort of militant tendency, that sort of retroness about it again, which what I want to ask you is, has has there been a need for um, uniting the membership again or, or, or has there been any sort of restructure within the membership about how we conduct ourselves, how we uh, exchange our views? It's great to be a broad church. I think we, you know, we that's good for politics, right? But we also have a, need to have some norms about how we conduct ourselves, and being anti-Semitic ain't one of them, right? 
Yeah, look, that's a really good that's a really good question. I think the um, the emblem of how badly the Labour Party had been led under Corbyn uh, was the investigation of the Labour Party by the Human Rights Commission, um, which found that the Labour Party was institutionally anti-Semitic. Um, the only other party ever investigated by the Human Rights Commission are the fascist British National Party. So that's how badly we'd fallen. Um, when that report came out, Jeremy Corbyn uh, quibbled with the detail of it. He wouldn't accept the report in total, wouldn't accept. So wouldn't accept responsibility. He wasn't the leader anymore, but he wouldn't accept responsibility for it. So um, he has, he was suspended from Labour Party membership. He's allowed back into the Labour Party. He was suspended. The whip was suspended from him in, in, in the Parliamentary Caucus. So he's an independent MP at the moment. And if he apologises, there may be an opportunity for him to rejoin the Labour Party. But as it is, he'll be an independent at the next election and will stand against a Labour candidate, will be expelled from the Labour Party and defeated in his seat. So symbolically, that big change is, is going on there. I think what has been helpful for the Labour Party is the membership has shrunk and some of the people who came from the far left um, have left. And they've left to go back to the parties they were in, um, the fringe far left parties. And, and in all honesty, that's where they should have they should have stayed. I do think there's a danger of one thing being lost uh, in all this, which if I, I think the, the the Corbyn manifesto is a fascinating one to read, not because of what it answers correctly, but because it actually asks some fundamental questions about the structure of working life, about the involvement of uh, of workers in the organisations they work for. Eighty six percent of us in the UK work in the private sector. Uh, with the decline of trade unionism, very few workers uh, have much say in how in their wage bargaining, in the way the companies run. Uh, so, kind of industrial democracy, workers' democracy, workers' involvement, the power, the power balance between labour and capital. So, so, there's been a real shift in markets all across uh, labour markets all, all across the global north. They, they asked a question about that. They asked a question about energy, energy prices, uh, about housing. So the fascinating thing about the, 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 the Corbyn challenge is that the energy and intellectual energy, so the physical energy, the intellectual energy, the political energy that was brought in from outside, from people who want a progressive settlement for Britain, that shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some really fundamental questions. And this Labour government, uh, which I do expect to see a minority Labour government, needs to have a programme of fundamental reform uh to 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 address the question so so some of the younger more idealistic people who were drawn in by corbyn have stayed which is good and a lot of the ferment of ideas of people around the the the, the left um has stayed and in my and in my view it is an important part for center-left people blairites progressives whatever you call whatever you call the, the grouping that i'm within to engage with the intellectual energy uh and some of the left ideas, as I said, they're not the right answer, but they're the right question. And if we don't answer fundamental questions, then you can't be a government that reforms on the way in a way that, um, uh, say, Hawke Keating did, because they addressed the fundamental questions. So the way that Attlee did in the UK in 1945, the way that Blair did in 1990, the way that even Wilson did in the 1960s, Labour governments in the UK don't come along very often. Uh, we win about one in every three elections on on, on average. That, which means we need to have a fundamental change program, a reform program uh, that we've thought through that we implemented. For me, that's part of the challenge for the next half of 
of the of the of the leadership of of, of Keir Starmer in the next two years up till the next election. What is the question facing the facing the UK? What's the question shaping the future of the UK to which Labour and only Labour are the answer? And what is the program that is the answer? So I think you know two years sorting the party, two years making clear that there's, there's you know we need fences boundaries with the left that there's a role for the left. It's just not inside you know, that, some of the left. Um, it's just not inside the Labour Party. Um, and the other part of this, which I should have mentioned at the top, the union movement has changed. And like as you know, the thing about unions is they, in a way, need a Labour government more than anybody else um, because their members need a Labour government. Their members actually need the conditions that a Labour government can, can, can create. Um, and so they've got moderate leadership now. And Unite, which had been the big backer for Jeremy Corbyn, which had Len McCluskey, former member of Militant himself, uh, they've now got um, a general secretary who's got an industrial agenda, uh, but not a political agenda. And she's been really clear. She's not going to interfere in the Labour Party. She's going to be demanding the, the right settlements for her workers. And now that's why she got elected. Uh, she's, a, she's, you know, she's, a, she's a left candidate, but she got elected because she was going to focus on the issues of members. And I think that is a good thing. If the, you know, the union movement and the Labour, the, the Labour Party, so the Labour movement and the Labour Party, have overlapping interests, but they're not identical. And as long as we understand what those are, we understand the terms of trade. So I think uh, we're in a good situation uh, organisationally, in a good situation in terms of membership, uh, in a good situation in terms of the parliamentary party's leadership. The challenge is, if Labour is going to form a minority government, we need 300 seats in the UK. That's 100 more than we have at the moment. That means 100 really good MPs have to be selected. That's a huge task. Um, a huge task. And uh, look, that was one of the takeaways, I think, from the South Australian state election. Uh, what was one of my takeaways when I think about, you know, and everyone had a hot take on why, why Labor won, but th there were certain key seats where Labor pre-selected incredibly early. Uh, and not only did they pre-select them early, they resourced them and they then gave them a strategy and a, and a plan to go out there and communicate a good message with the electorate. Now, the electorates in South Australia aren't reasonably big. They're 20,000. So, you know, even one candidate with a group of volunteers can get around there and have those conversations. Lucy Hood springs to mind in the seat of Adelaide. Uh, a huge margin to make up. But, geez, you know, Lucy was out every weekend, every weekend talking to people. And I just you can't underestimate that in the role of trying to claw back and win voters' hearts and minds and not just sort of assume that one of the things that frustrates me from political strategists is that they just assume that because the demographics are now this, it will remain thus. There's no thought process into going and say, well, no, no, well, let's win in the argument, seat by house by house, you know, person by person. And I, I, I want to ask you a question about the polling. Where are do, where do you see Labor making gains at this point in time? I know, as you said, 100 seats, long way to go, but certainly the polling is suggesting that Labor are coming back. Where are they coming back? Is it geographical? Is it by? Yeah, so Labor, um, it's a good question. Late. Labour are getting stronger in areas where they were already strong. So London, ironically, London, which is a, where Boris Johnson had his base, he was mayor of London, elected twice. Uh, London is now written off by the Tories as, uh, as totally Labour. It's written off so much that the Tories really basically want all the housing that's needed in the UK just to be built in London. Because like, it doesn't matter. Uh, there'll be Labour voters, if it's social housing, if it's affordable housing. So L London, but there's also been... Um, Part of the pandemic has been, you know, the great reset, the great resignation, the great people 
re-examining their lives uh, and the dynamic of a London of an overpriced London uh, housing market has been spreading uh, young professionals into um, towns around London, uh, into areas which have been previously um, very solidly Tory, and the changing nature of the of the of the country of the around um, uh, London and the home counties, um, your Hampshire's, your Kent's, your Essex's, whatever. People are talking now, people in the last election, the Tories had a target of the red wall, this, this Labour seats, uh, which were so solid uh, that they believed were available to the Tories because they were on, they were, they had characteristics that were similar to, to Tory seats in the, in the southeast of England. Um, they took those in a big sweep. We're seeing a, a blue wall, Tory seats that look, look invulnerable. Actually, you look at the social composition, look at the change in them. And like you say, if a candidate goes and meets everybody in their electorate, they, they can convince them. And if it's a different Labour Party, I think the Labour Party alienated. So the voters have come back from the ones who just went like, you gave us Jeremy Corbyn once, fair enough. You've given him us twice. What do we have to do? We have to defeat you massively until you get the point. Um, we, you know, it's, So they, there's, 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 there's those people coming back. There's uh, ordinary working class voters who they lent their votes to the Tories to get Brexit done. Brexit's got done. And Brexit is now no longer a political issue in terms of are you for it or against it. It's a fact. We've left the European Union. Uh, the issue of what relationship we'll have with Europe uh, is yet to be defined. What we can see in the way the government are running it is they have no clue how to do it. They have no clue how to be uh, close to our biggest single market, how to, be, how to, how to, how to exploit being not in it um, without annoying the people in it, without preventing, without creating barriers to, to exports and to trade and to movement of labour. And So we... Those, those, those labor, you could say it very crudely, the Labour voters in the north of England, in the Red Wall seats in, in the Midlands, they voted for a, a high spending, um, high tax, high spending Tory party because they saw in Boris Johnson a figure who was not like, he's not a Thatcherite. He was not going to cut public spending. He, like he's clearly a man who wants to spend public money. He's trapped inside his party by his... Uh, by his chancellor, who is a Thatcherite, who won't let him spend money, and that tension's working out. And these, I think, tensions work out really quickly now. Which is like, people voted Tory in Labour seats. They're looking at it and they're going, "But what have I got for it?" Uh, in the next next election, twenty twenty four, most likely, average households will pay three thousand pounds a year more in tax. That their energy bills are doubling. Um, inflation's heading to ten percent. Under those circumstances. You might have got, you know, the Tories were hoping to have a second chance at the election. But what you're seeing is traditional Labour voters coming back. Now, not fully back. Um, probably, it's probably been a 5% swing to Labour, uh, a solid 5% swing since the last election, which is enough to put Labour between 275 and 300 seats. It's not enough to create a majority. But no parties in Parliament are going to support a minority Tory government. So Labour is the only option for a minority government. So we're coming back, and it feels as though it's one of those ones where the public are going to go, you lost our trust, you're definitely on the right path, you definitely look like the kind of people we could vote for, and Keir Starmer, like you, you look like a man I can trust, I'm going to give you a chance, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, I'm not going to give you everything. So a kind of two-step probably for the Labour Party, win a minority government, uh, and run that minority government until you can, until you prove to the public you've changed, prove your competence, 
and then call a snap election to get uh, a small majority with 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 a with the final swing that you need. So L- Labour is also seeing a Tory party that has its own internal problems. We were talking about uh, my view of the Liberals not 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 knowing how to win back Melbourne or or, or Adelaide really, um, or Victoria or South Australia. The Boris Johnson is a compromise. He was for Brexit, but he's actually for immigration. He's a cosmopolitan liberal. His granddad was Turkish. He's got American citizenship. He's a citizen of the world, the very thing which half the Tory party hate, half the Tory party want to oppose. And so he so, so he was the compromise because he could win Labour voters, but to win and keep Labour voters, he do Labourish things, and the Tory party is unable to bring itself to do Labourish things. And I think... That's the fundamental problem they've got. So Labour, I've got a plan to spend £28 billion pounds, uh, on getting to net zero if elected. Now, there's a lot of blue-collar jobs there. Uh, there's a lot of insulation for, um, for middle-class homes. There's a lot. £28 billion pounds is, a, is a big programme to win hearts and minds and create jobs opportunities and to tackle uh, the greatest uh, challenge of our time. So I think in that sense, you can see that the Labour's got a lot of the elements together and the Tories' confidence was that they, I mean, they're a fourth-term government and they're looking for a fifth term and nobody's done, won that. So there's a bit of tiredness in them. No, Nobody in democratic period has ever won a fifth term in the, in the UK. So the tiredness of the, of the, um, uh, of, of the, um, of, of the government, they've gone through four elections, more than that with reshuffles, and they don't seem to have any new ideas, and that seems to, to seems to us to be a big to be a big challenge. I want to ask you about the the Ukraine war and the the way that it's playing out domestically um, in the UK. But before before we do that, for our Australian listeners that may not have been following some of the 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 crises or the scandals that are following the Johnson government, starting with the the parties that were happening in uh, Ten Downing Street over the Christmas period when the country was in lockdown um, and how that's played out. Um, what impact is that having on voters' attitudes towards this tired, jaded Tory government? So I think the, the, the Tory strategy was to acknowledge that there were a fourth-term government looking for a fifth term by changing the terms of trade, by changing it to... Um, Effectively saying, we're a, sec- we're a first term Johnson government looking for a second Johnson term. Uh, so kind of rebranding that the leadership is the change. Um, and there's definitely a time for change mood around us. So, so who can capture that is, is up for debate. The, the PM had, Boris Johnson had a problem anyway with his proposition. His proposition was, uh, first, thank me for Brexit. Now, like I said, um, Churchill wasn't thanked for beating Mr. Hitler. So very unlikely that... The British voters who, who are far less deferential now are going to thank him for, for Brexit. Then it was like, thank me for the pandemic. And one of the ironies of the pandemic is the bad management of it, which led to 50,000 deaths that were unnecessary. We, we moved to lockdown in Britain far too slowly. And the, P, the PM famously said, um, I let the bodies pile up in the streets. He, he was very callous about, the, about that. He... The, the PM was unpopular uh, and losing and getting more and more unpopular until the vaccine was rolled out in the UK. We had a very quick vaccine rollout, and I think it's you know it's 
uh, it's interesting to see the, the role in politics the vaccine rollout has had. You know, had Trump worn a mask and had Trump rolled out a vaccine, he might still be president. Um, and you know, had the federal government taken responsibility for a vaccine program, bought stuff on the open market, uh, and stepped in and not uh, let AZ get the bad reputation that it got, uh, you you could have a different politic. The politics or the politics are formed by by the big actions by by the government. So the vaccine rollout has been has been you know it rescued the reputation of the government, the reputation of the prime minister. Um, and like I think I said before, he is the, you know he's the life of all the party. He's a joker. Uh, it turns out he was having parties at number ten right through the lockdown, right through the period of um, uh, when we had real restrictions on our social lives. A number of people could visit. People couldn't go to see sick parents. Um, uh, in hospital, uh, people couldn't um, uh, go to funerals. Very small number who were able to go to funerals. So l- life events, uh, weddings were, were 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 postponed. All kinds of things. But in Number Ten Downing Street, where the Prime Minister both lives and works, um, it turns out there's been, there was a series of parties that broke all broke all the rules. Now this started as one of those kind of inside the Beltway uh, scandals, where it was in a paper. Honestly, when it was first raised by Keir Starmer in, in, in question time, in Prime questions, I thought, this will go nowhere. I thought, like most commentators and most people on the inside of politics, the issue of Boris Johnson is everybody knows he's a hypocrite. Everybody knows he's a liar. Everybody knows he plays fast and loose. Uh, um, so, like, he's built, it, it's, it's in his character. People elect him knowing all this. They're not going to worry about this. Um, it turns out he pushed it too far. Uh, which I think always happens to people who, in a sense, are, who ride their luck as politicians. Uh, he pushed it too far, and I think he thought he could ride through it. It's just one story. It turned out to be a string of stories, a string of breaches, and the public don't know the details. I mean, I could probably recall the details if I sat here with you, but what people get is the vibe, and the vibe is one rule for me, another rule for you. And that sense of us and them in politics, you know, the great binary in politics is um, on your side and out of touch. If you can own on your side, Johnson was on on your side if you were for Brexit, made that election, and, and Corbyn was out of touch. What's happened is that Johnson's lost that sense of being on your side. He's out of touch. A, so, yeah, 80, 70, let's see. 68% of the public, 68% of the public think he's a liar, a hypocrite, and should resign over breaking the rules during lockdown. 32% disagree. That is the core Tory vote. That means every swing voter in Britain has made up their mind about the, about the Prime Minister. And the thing is, some things damage you and then go away, but in my view, some things damage you permanently because they show who you are. The public don't see the character of politicians. They see their leadership in action. They see their judgments in action. And sometimes you just get this, you see someone and you go, oh, that's who you really are. You're, you're not the life and soul of the party, you're holding parties. You're not the guy uh, who makes me laugh because you tell, you tell funny stories. You're the guy who's laughing at me. Um, so the, the, the idea that the PM is looking down on all of us is a real problem uh, for him. And I think it has formed a view. And if you look at the polling since the since the Ukraine war, 
there hasn't been a rally around the flag effect. That basically the the verdict is in. There'll be some recovery, I'm sure, for the for 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 the for the Tory party, but the prime minister himself, people know who he is, and I think he knows who he is because when he made his first apology, um, the big apology to the House of Commons. There's been a number of apologies, but the first apology he had to make. He looked deflated and defeated. He looked like a man who, behind his eyes, knew that he was he was he was leaving office out of office. He's recovered since then because everybody has a chance in politics. If you if you live a day, you live to fight another day. You live to fight another day. You live to fight another day. So um, he believes, and I kind of believe that he'll be the Tory candidate at the next election. That he'll be the prime minister at the next election. Um, but I th- think. Um, that's bad for them, not good for them. Um, and I think the, the the broad public verdict is in, which is why I say I think the Tories have lost the next election, but I don't think they've they've settled on Labour as the answer yet. The invasion of uh, a Western liberal democracy by uh, the Russians uh, a couple of weeks ago, has that provided an opportunity for a circuit breaker domestically for... Johnson is he looking at it as a life raft? Oh my God! Let, please stop talking about me. Can we talk about something else? You know. Yeah. Look. He, look. He's he's uh, he's like Mr. McCorber and um, uh, in Dickens. Like he he always wants something to turn up. So th- this has turned up. The, the invasion has turned up. He's not had a great like he he's he's portrayed himself in the UK press as being the the decisive factor in standing up to Russia. Um, Mainly by trying to bankrupt my football club Chelsea, um, but the the decisive choice uh, in the in in this uh, in this conflict, the the choice has been made by 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 Joe Biden, President Biden, and by Chancellor Scholz in Germany. So Scholz is somebody you definitely should do um, a program somewhere you can talk about the social democratic victory uh, in um, uh, in in Germany. I'm trying to write a piece uh, for the Financial Times about the the revival of social democracy in Europe. You know, we're there in uh, all the Nordics, we're there in Germany, we're there in centrist in, in Italy, we're there in Spain, we're there in Portugal, um, and there's going to be a progressive victory again in um, in France. So the return of centre-left politics, the quiet return of centre-left politics has been going But Schultz is, is, is a leader. Schultz just took this opportunity, not consulting the cabinet, not consulting his party, not consulting the Polish party, going... Germany is going to make defence a third pillar of the European Union. We have the economy. We've always had the economy. We've had culture. We've always had culture. We're not going to make defence security a thing. So Europe has changed. European politics has changed. Uh, Biden, with the way that they revealed, um, released intelligence, you know, saying, saying what the, the, the Russians were going to do before they did it, um, it, was, it was great because it kind of framed things in the information war saying if this happens it'll happen because the russians are trying to pretend that this happens but also it must be undermining for the kremlin because it proves america's got deep and accurate sources at the very top uh of the russian the russian government so biden's played blinder um uh schultz has played a blinder the european union has, has come together uh, to address the refugee crisis amongst other things uh, and Boris just trying to bustle his way in, trying to, 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 to get his way in there. And yes, it's deferred. Um, yes, it is deferred uh, um, some of his crises, but he's still the only prime minister in British history to be interviewed under caution 
albeit on a questionnaire, but interviewed under caution by the police. Um, he's got a whole bunch of staff being interviewed under caution by the police. Uh, there's a question of fines to come. He could be fined. His staff could be fined. Um, and then after the police, there's a, there's a civil service inquiry uh, by a, a senior civil servant called Sue Gray, who is a secretary of one of the departments. Um, more importantly, she used to run propriety and ethics for the government in, in the central government and cabinet office. But possibly more importantly, uh, when she took her career break in the 80s, uh, she ran a pub in bandit country um, in Northern Ireland. So anybody who's run a pub in bandit country in Northern Ireland need not fear uh, the best wishes of the prime minister. Uh, so I think she'll find without fear or favor uh, in her report. So there's loads of things to come back. And, you know, there'll be an attempt to blame uh, the Russians for inflation, but the Russians aren't responsible for Britain not having an energy policy. Um, you know, one, one of the tropes of the current government which is really interesting is they keep announcing in their fourth term, it's time to do something fundamental about energy. It's time to do something fundamental, implying that everything that's gone before, and what they do is they start to say for, for decades, governments haven't addressed this issue. It's like, but you've been, you know, wait till you find out who's been in charge since 2010. So there, so there's an element of the of the, of the prime minister's um, character, which is he lives in a permanent present. So like everything he did before is irrelevant. It's like what he says now, and it's worked for him for a very long time. And the government is governing like that. They're trying to say, yeah, we may have no gas storage, but we'll address that right now. We may not have had a plan uh, for uh, for keeping the lights on. We're going to have one now. Uh, we may not have had a plan. So they're, they're, they're trying to make themselves into a completely new government uh, addressing all these fundamental questions. And I think the issue is the public do remember that they have been around for a while. You can't, you can't have been around for ages and it not been your, not been your responsibility. So to, to land that, Labour is going to need um, some symbolic policies, some key attacks that it comes back to again and again. But I don't think the war is going to wash the memory the parties, and we call party gate over here, parties and the process behavior away, and it's not going to be a compensation for, you know, we're, it's going to be two years till the next election. In two years' time, every household will pay £3,000 on average floor in taxes. They will be told that has been done to help the National Health Service, to help restore uh, the health system after uh, the impact of the pandemic, but we already know waiting lists for operations and treatments are going to carry on rising for the next two years. So Labour's campaign could be really simple. You know, are, are you, is your tax burden higher? Are you pay more tax? Yes. Uh, is, is your um, local health service sorted? No. For Labour. Um, I think the, the accumulation of grievances, uh, real, practical, proximate grievances, health and housing and elder care and um, inflation, um, those things, you know, you can wrap yourself in the flag as much as you want. You can wear khaki as much as you want. Um, hopefully, there will not be a conflict in Ukraine by the time we get to the to the next election. Um, there will be a settlement and a reconstruction program and a ref and, a, and you know a, a peace settlement which is gives justice to Ukraine, um, which keeps Russia in a box, which resettle resets relations with China, um, which does a lot of geopolitical things. And then has a hundred billion, two hundred billion, possibly a quarter of a trillion uh, pound, so a half a billion dollar, uh, half half a trillion dollars reconstruction program uh, aimed at 
restoring Kiev, Kharkiv, um, uh, Mariupol, Odessa, restoring uh, Ukraine. And in, it's, at that time, it's going to be, I think, you know, the PM will try to claim credit and look backwards. The, whoever the Tory leaders are going to say, look, we had a good war. And the thing is, once again, back to one of my themes, you don't get thanked for what you did. Uh, you get votes for what you promise uh, for the future. I'm conscious of the time, but I do want to ask you a question about about Europe. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far. I, I don't think I'd go through so far as saying that it was going through an existential crisis, the European Union with Brexit, but it certainly was getting kicked in the pills a bit. And uh, the, the 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 fabric of the union seemed to be starting to be frayed. And then this has happened. Not that we ever wanted this, but just give me a sense of what is going on in, in, in Europe at this point in time because of the, the, the attack on, on the Ukraine? So, so, so Europe had fundamental st structural and existential problems before Brexit. And those fundamental problems were the single currency as a project uh, was an economic punishment for southern European economies, uh, for Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece. Um, Greece had the, the, the well-known crisis, the debt crisis, um, and the austerity forced on it by the European Union. And that was essentially a very, very conservative German uh, monetary policy being imposed uh, on southern European countries who, were in, who had to take it because they wanted to stay in, in, in the euro. Europe also had an east-west legitimacy crisis in that if Europe, the European Union stands for anything, it stands for the rule of law and for democracy, it was the route for... Uh, former Soviet, uh, former Warsaw Pact states, former Communist Party states, to become uh, democracies, to be rich economies, to become members of NATO, uh, and yet Orban in Hungary uh, and the governments in Romania and Bul Bulgaria, autocratic, undemocratic, uh, leaning towards absolutely leaning towards Putin's Russia. Um, and a far right in France under Le Pen and in other countries, the Sweden Democrats, uh, looking towards um, Putin too, taking Russian, taking, taking, allegedly taking Russian money, but definitely Russian disinformation was supporting uh, these, par the, 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 these parties and the fragmentation of the democracy and the democratic discourse in those countries. You had all of that, the so East, North, South and East, West crisis going on. Temporarily, Brexit united people because they could all agree uh, to be anti-Britain, well short of Britain. And, you know, Britain leaving gave a temporary sense of unity to the European Union. What this crisis has done is it's made people choose. So Orban and Hungary, uh, the Polish government, uh, have chosen Europe in a big way. The European Union, the norms of the European Union. The far right are pretending they never met Putin, they never liked him, they never had anything to do with him. Uh, even Nigel Farage in our country, in the UK, who ran the Brexit campaign. So you've had a, you've had that you've had that reset, and you've had, as I said, Schultz putting uh, Chancellor Schultz, the Social Democratic uh, Chancellor of, um, of Germany, putting um, the the party at the heart, um, Germany at the heart, uh, by saying actually we're no longer stand back on defence security, we're no longer going to want our gas from uh, from Russia, the clean break here, the new border, the new behaviours expected. Uh, and I think that's given a new, you know, what, if you take it seriously, uh, economics, culture and defence security as three pillars of the European Union make it into a very different geopolitical force. 
Uh, and if Finland and Sweden are now on the track to join NATO, NATO looks different. NATO is much more European. Um, and, you know, the longer term project, it has taken decades to create an ethno-nationalist, militaristic, autocratic culture in Russia. Um, we saw it happen uh, in Japan for the Second World War. We saw it happen in Germany from the time of the Prussians right through. Uh, we saw how much was required to demilitarize German and Japanese culture after the Second World War. There's going to there's going to need to be a new Ostpolitik, a new politics to the East, a new politics towards Russia. How can we support the demilitarization uh, of Russia, which is an amazing thing to think about, given it's a, a nuclear power? But actually, there has to be, and China has to be a partner in this, which changes the way we have to think about China. So, so there's. There's a geopolitical reset going on, um, which I think, in a way, is why a khaki election, uh, a wartime election, is not going to work for uh, for Boris Johnson. I don't think it will work for Scott Morrison. What the public aren't stupid; they understand when things are really, really big. This is really, really big. This is not a matter of having big defence forces in Australia or whatever. This is a matter of how do we how do we get through this century with a situation where a nuclear power has crossed the red line of saying we'll use nuclear weapons in a in a regional conflict. How do we get through this century where we still have to get to net zero? How, so we kind of the, the terms of the next century are being set. And from my point of view, the challenge for progressives is to have an economic and a cultural and a defense and security narrative in our countries and in our alliances uh, regionally and globally that we can build on uh, to make the progressive case because we've gone through a period, uh, you know, know, post-war, it was a progressive settlement. Uh, Post the OPEC crash outside of Australia, it was broadly a neoliberal reset by a Reagan-Thatcher reset. Well, there's a big reset coming, so what's the frame of those politics? And that uh, is kind of amazing to think about um, and deeply demanding of all of us, but it's quite exciting too. And that would be another good podcast for us to have in the future. But I know you need to go. So, John McTiernan, once again, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate uh, the chat. As always, I absolutely could listen to you for hours. Um, but, um, you know, you're a busy boy. Um, but here's hope. Let's have a beer soon. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.